Good morning. My name is Bill McCracken. I'm one of the lay elders here. And we are continuing in our series, Elijah, when conformity is not an option. And as we, our pastor leads us in the, the title today is Some Things We Should Know About God. We're going to be reading from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 1, from verse 1 to 18. So you can, I'd ask you to turn there if you have a Bible. In the Pew Bible, that would be page 307. Page 307, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ek Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel? that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah, the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And, the third, and, and he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came 
and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O oh, man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. Now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings, kings of Israel? So Ahaziah's brother, Jehoram, became king in his place. Let us pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you and praise you that you are the God who lives, the God who sees, the God who knows, the God of justice, but you are a God of mercy. We thank you today that we stand before you only because you are a God of mercy. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with your servant, Paul, as he speaks your word. Father, may your spirit empower the words that he speaks. May our hearts be prepared to hear. Help us, Father, to understand and know you, to love you, to honor, and to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking as we were singing that uh, hymn, Rejoice the Lord is King, and then the one, Behold Your God, that we were a little subdued as a congregation. And I'm not quite sure if that's because we're Baptist or if we're not convinced that God is King, but you know, what was running through my head was just the mess that this world is in as we were singing that song. What was going through my head was bombing Syria, was the discussions going on in Ottawa now about Alberta and BC and pipelines and the turmoil that's around the world. And what was going through my head was what I read at the beginning of the day as I was waking up. Well, I was already awake, but I read this. It says, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And it was just a confidence in my heart that as those things were sort of flashing through my mind as we're worshiping, that I can rejoice, that I can shout to our God above because he is on the throne even though our world seems like it's being turned upside down. Now that's a mini sermon. Um, now we get to uh, the rest of it. I was thinking about this text and I had a couple titles for this um, sermon. Uh, Lessons from a dying man to dying men. Um, or women 
it's, uh, you know, and that, you'll understand that in a moment, or some things that we should know about God. And today we drop into another text, as Pastor Barry said from his text last week, that you likely have never heard a sermon from, and probably never will hear another sermon from, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 1. It's a story unlike any other story that we find actually in the book of Kings and Chronicles because most of the recounting of a king's life is about things that they've done, accomplishments that they've achieved. Where in this particular text and about this particular uh, king, it's about how he died. And it's a fascinating uh, look into the life of a dying man. So as I say, it's a story not about how a king ruled, but how a king died. And I think there's lots of lessons for us to learn in it. In fact, I've got five questions that I want to ask that at least help me wrestle my way through this text. And so the first question is simply this. What's been happening in your life lately? What's been happening in your life lately? You look at King Ahaziah here and his world has been rocked. It has been turned upside down. And you see that in three different instances. First, in, in chapter uh, 1, verse 1, it says that his father had died. That's a significant rocking point in any person's life, particularly a man's life, to lose their father. It's Alistair Begg that often uh, mentions that uh, it can be a fairly traumatic experience for a man to lose his father because he's lost the stability, he's lost the reference point, and sometimes it takes a while for a man to reorient and realize that he's got to now lead, he's got to now be the one that sets the pace and sets the tone. So anyhow, Ahaziah's dad died. The second thing that the texts tell us is that Moab rebelled against Israel. It's no small thing. Um, at, up to this point, Moab had been held at bay. And Moab now was rebelling against Israel. If you go to uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, you realize that Moab was also rebelling against Israel. And this was a big deal. We'll mention it in a couple uh, minutes when we get to it. But it was such a big deal that the, uh, the, 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 the armies of Moab were said to be a great horde. So this wasn't just a, a little skirmish and a little bit of a battle that was taking place. This was a great horde that was knock, knock, knocking on the door of Samaria. Uh, that was the second trauma that was going on in his life. The third trauma was that he had fallen through a second story window. Uh, um, <laughs> I'll say it. When I was a little boy, um, and I should have fallen through a second story window, but we had a house that had a, uh, a window. And you could sit on the window and you have a little bit of a roof. And I would sit on the window with a mirror. And the sun would shine um, towards the, the window. And I would take this mirror and I would flash it in the eyes of people walking up and down Cook Street and, and driving along the road. And I'm so thankful, one, that nobody ever died and that I didn't fall out of the window. But nonetheless, this is what King um, Ahaziah fell out of it. The lattice was a sort of a protective guard on the window. And maybe he was looking out, maybe he was talking to somebody, maybe he lost his balance, but he fell out of a window and he was sick, really sick. Um, it had caused uh, some um, pretty significant issues. So there's three things that had been taking place in his life. His dad died, Moab was knocking on the door, and he had fallen out a window and he was really, really sick. This is Job-like kind of stuff. This is your world being turned upside down kind of stuff. What would you say to somebody that was in this kind of situation? If you were uh, called to the hospital of your neighbor or a friend of yours, yours and uh, they were sort of on their deathbed, it was a pretty serious situation, you didn't know if they were going to die, they were going to live, what would you say to them? If this was you, what would you say to yourself if this described your world? All of a sudden it had collapsed in on itself. 
and you are facing these kinds of trauma. I think the first thing that we ought to remind ourselves is that nothing happens by accident. That we believe that God is on the throne, do we not? And we believe that God guides and directs every event in all the courses of our lives and of our world. There's nothing that takes place outside of the providence of God. God knows the number of our days. God afflicts, God makes well. God kills, God makes alive. God feeds, God sustains, God raises life. As we've seen in these stories, God sends fire from heaven. God is the one that directs a randomly shot arrow to find the chink or the one gap in the armor of a king that causes his death. There is nothing that takes place that is outside of the hand of God. So in light of that, and in light of difficult circumstances that come into our lives, the question that we should first ask anytime this kind of thing happens is, God, is there anything you're trying to get my attention about? And that doesn't matter if you're a Christian or an unchristian or a non-believer. It is a question that you should ask yourself because if we believe that God directs all the affairs of this world, if difficulties come into our life, they may be there because God is trying to get our attention about something. And so we see about this king, his life and his world had been turned upside down. Secondly, second question, who do you turn to when the going gets tough? Who do you turn to when your world is turned upside down? Apparently, Ahaziah had his own sort of counselors and direction. And I don't know why I was thinking of fairy tales and whatnot, but the first thing that came into my head when I thought of this was, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to Ekron I go. That's what the king decided to do. He decided, you know what, I need to go to Ekron for help. And then the second thing that came into my head was Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Could Baal of Ekron put Ahaziah back together again? That was his go-to option. Of all the choices that were before him, when he was in trouble, when his world was rocked, he says, I'm going to go down to Ekron and I'm going to consult Baal Zebub. I don't mean to make light of it by referring to those uh, little ditties. But the king had gathered around him a bunch of messengers and he said, you know what, I want you guys to go down to Ekron and I want you to consult the god of Ekron and find out whether or not I'm going to recover from my sickness. Some of you who are familiar with the Lord of the Flies would understand the use of this particular word, Belzebub. Belzebub means Lord of the Flies. Now it could also be Belzebul, which means Prince of uh, or Prince Baal. There's a little bit of uh, fun that the, uh, the, the writers of the text are having here by playing with the last uh, letter of that name. But nonetheless, do you think a god of the flies is able to tell a king that he's going to live again or that he's going to die? And in fact, it's not the last part of the name that really concerns me. It's the first part of the name, Baal. Why is it that this was the king's go-to reference when he ran into trouble? It wasn't just an off-the-top kind of thing. As his life began to fall apart, he says, mm, I think I better go see Baal. No, this was the direction of his life. We find that you flip back to the last part of 1 Kings, just over a half a page, and you find there this description of Ahaziah. It says, he served Baal, and he worshipped him, and he provoked the Lord. That was his default position. When I'm in trouble, I turn to Baal. And so he sent his representatives to consult Baal of Ekron to see if he would get better. Ahaziah should have known that nothing good comes out of Ekron. If you're familiar again with your Bible, you might recall 1 Samuel chapter 5. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines had uh, done a raid in Israel and they had captured the ark. The ark of the Lord or the ark of the covenant symbolized the presence of God. And when they brought the ark into their country, they put it in the temple of their god Dagon as sort of a way of demonstrating their triumph or Dagon's triumph over the God of Israel. You know the story, as they went into their temple the next day, Dagon was flat on his face, and I think if I recall it right, his head had fallen off. And so they took the ark out of the temple, and he said, well, we're going to put it in this city. They stuck the ark in that city, and all of a sudden, all the men of the town began to develop tumors and die and be terrorized. So they got the people of the city, and they rented the leaders and said, we've got to get this thing out of here. So they moved it to another city. Same thing happened. Tumors developed. People started to die. People felt terror on every side. So they said, well, let's move it to Ekron. Aren't you glad if you lived in Ekron? And they brought the ark of the Lord to Ekron. And the same thing happened there. Tumors, death, and terror. Could anything good come from Ekron? Ahaziah would have known that. That's the history of Israel. That had only happened a few hundred years earlier. It's not something that would have escaped his notice. So my question is, what makes us so resistant to God? What is it that makes us so unwilling to consult God, but consult everything else and everyone else around us? Why is it that we're so unwilling to sort of, um, to, to follow the word of God and to stand in the word of God, but we want to stand in the assembly of sinners, we want to sit in the seat of scoffers? What is it about us that makes us do that? I've observed in the course of ministry that the nearness of death does not necessarily result in right or good thinking. Looking the end uh, in the face does not necessarily bring about clear thinking in us about our present situation and about our future reality. The nearness of death may make us sober, but it doesn't make us smart. And we find that in the life of Ahaziah. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Even as our country has been sobered by the loss of so many lives in one particular instance, are we thinking correctly about death? Are we thinking correctly about life? Are we asking the right questions? Are we going to the right sources for counsel and hope? Here we have Ahaziah about to step into eternity with nothing but Baal. Or should I say with nothing at all? Who are you turning to? When the going gets tough. See, the sad thing about this particular man is that in the supreme need of his life, when, when his world has been rocked the most, he didn't seek God. As a dad, as some of you know, I've had three boys, and I always wanted to be the perfect dad. I also, and I was. No, for, for about eight seconds in my mind. But I, I always naively hoped that my, my kids would come to me for stuff. That when they ran into trouble, they would come and talk to dad. When they needed advice, they'd come and talk to dad. When they needed money, they'd talk to mom. <laughs> um, but I, I always hoped that I could sort of be all things to all my boys at all times. And there were those few moments when I was hurt, when I realized I wasn't their go-to person, that they would go to somebody else. And in fact, as we reflect on that now, Kathy and I always prayed that God would give our boys another family that would say the same things we would, that would live the same way we would, but they would listen to their voice and not our voice. Because we knew that sometimes your kids will not listen to you, but they'll listen to somebody else. 
And so God, in his mercy, provided us with um, one of those for each one of our boys. But as I look back, that was misguided. And it was an unrealistic desire of mine to have that of my boys because I don't know all things and I don't have all the resources. But God is different, is he not? When you think about God, do you understand that there is nobody greater than God? There is nobody more powerful. There is nobody that is omniscient. There is nobody that is omnipresent. There is nobody wiser, nobody stronger. That he is the creator of this world and all things in it. He is the creator of you and I. He is the sovereign Lord that made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that is in them. He did all this by his wisdom and by the power of his word. He created us to worship him and to consult him and to walk in fear of him. He knows the future. He knows the past. He knows our present. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins and salvation. So what an affront it is to God who has done all of that when we look at him and say, Nah, I'm going to go to Ekron. When rather than worship the creator, we worship creation. Rather than worship the God who made all things, who knows all things, who in, in whom is all wisdom, we go to everyone and every place but God. What is it about us that does that? It's nothing new, is it? This is what mankind has done from the garden. We have walked away from God. We want our own autonomy. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to call the own shots of our life. We're proud. We don't want to express our need from one who is over us. We don't want to bring our lives into accountability before him. You see this all around you, do you not? You see it in your neighbors. You see it in the people that you work with. You see it in the schools that, that you go to or that your children go to. Do you see people maybe in your world who have this same sort of trifecta as Ahaziah was going through and they turn to everyone and everywhere but God? And it's like, what is going on? You, you shake your head and you say, why? How? How? Why will you not consider God, at least in this situation in your life? We have a world that is embracing so many anti-God worldviews. We have a world that is increasingly committed to philosophical, philosophical or scientific naturalism. They are committed to a closed universe. Their God is a God of science and evolutionary dogmatism. They're committed to an evolutionary mindset, even though there is a considerable amount of evidence that is suggesting its implausibility. We are embracing secularism. We are embracing pure materialism. We are looking for things and for um, solutions that um, uh, offer us everything and anything but God. And it's all around us. Many today, if they don't turn to their own philosophical systems, they turn to deviant spirituality. They turn to the occult for answers. When they find themselves in trouble, they go to a fortune teller or they want to have their tarot cards read or they go to psychics or they can consult their horoscopes or they embrace Eastern religions. Anything and anyone but God. The Ahaziah mindset is everywhere. It's not only prevalent among unbelievers, though, loved ones, it also creeps into the church and the company of God's people. There's a story, a great story in the book of Joshua. Joshua is the account of how the people of Israel go and conquer the land of Canaan that God has given them. 
And in Joshua chapter 9, there's a story of the Gibeonites who realized that there was no one and nothing that could stand in the way of the Israelite armies. And so they decided to put on a deception to see if they could not trick Joshua and the leaders into accepting them. And so they put on beat up clothes, they put on shoes that were worn up, they got bread and they made it stale and they made their way to Joshua and the men. And after some talking and a little bit of discussion, finally Joshua and his leaders make a pact with them that they will not hurt them. And they all of a sudden realized they were residents of Canaan who were under the ban that God had set. And the issue is found in verse 14 and 15 where the trouble came because they did not inquire of God. All that trouble came into Israel for years down the road because they did not inquire of God. In Isaiah chapter 43 verse 22, it's God lamenting again the waywardness of his own people. And he says to them, you did not call on me. You have grown weary of me. What is it that causes us to grow weary of God? What is it that, uh, that takes place in us that we all of a sudden snap and we say, you know what, I'm not even going to pray anymore. I'm not even going to consult God anymore. When our world falls apart, the last place that we turn is to God and inquire of God. We're weary of him. There's another account in the book of Chronicles about a king who became sick. And it says of this king that he sought the physicians, but he did not seek the help of God. What is it that in our troubles and in our distresses, we will go to every source for help except the one who directs all sources of help and in fact can ultimately help us? Ahaziah fell through the window of his roof and was very sick. And his first thought was not, I must trust Jesus, or what's that song, I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus. His first response was an idol. So again, to whom or where do you turn when your world collapses in upon you? Third question, what's your response when the obvious is staring you in the face? In 1 Kings 5 uh, to 8, it describes the account of how the king gets a bunch of messengers together and he says to them, listen, I, I want you guys to go down to Ekron and consult the God there. They didn't get very far. We know that. The text tells us that. It was a journey that one way was 73 kilometers. And the king is surprised that they've turned around and come home so quickly to him. And so I guess in my head, I wonder, well, what was going on in their head that, that, that would all of a sudden cause them to stop in their tracks, turn around, and go back to the king? We'll get a little hint from uh, the text where it says, The angel of the Lord came to Elijah with some orders of his own. Go and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria. Say to them, it's because, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore... Thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Think this through with me just for a couple of moments. What would make these messengers leave on their mission and turn around and go back? After all, they had been commanded by the king. You don't just determine which commands you're going to obey and not obey. If the king tells you to go somewhere, you go there. They didn't even know who it was, who they met. It was just a man. Do you really think that they would obey a king's order that easily? 
I suspect in part it was because this man that they talked to spoke with authority. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody speak with authority. You can distinguish it from somebody who doesn't speak with authority. There must have been something in the way that Elijah communicated these words and the force of these words and the way they fell upon their mind and their heart. Not unlike in Jesus' days when Jesus was teaching in the temples and the people would say, this guy has authority. He speaks and he says things and he teaches in a way that our religious leaders don't. So there was a recognition that there was an authority behind Elijah that was not behind their king. I suspect they said to themselves as well, how does this guy know where we're going? He just showed up in the middle of nowhere and now he says, listen, don't go down to Ekron and he also knows what the king has asked us to do. He says, I want you to go back and tell the king, listen, is it because there's no God in Israel that you have to go to Ekron? You go back and you tell the king he's gonna die. That must have shocked them. How does this guy know that? How does he read our minds? Well, loved ones, this is where we magnify God, is it not? This is where we wrestle in our hearts and mind once again with, with the God whom, to whom we serve and to whom we give an account. God knows all things. God knows the hearts and minds of all people. He knew what was in the heart of the king. He knew it was the journey that the messengers were going to be on. He knew where they were going to be. He knew where Elijah had to meet them. All of that God knew. And that was one split second of one circumstance in one part of the world. God knows that about everyone, everywhere, all the time. Clearly their message got the king's attention. They come back to the king and the king says, describe the man. And I bet you he said it with a little bit more fury and a little bit more anger than that. And so they said he wore a garment of hair. Some of your translations would say he was a hairy man. Doesn't really much matter which way it is. Um, maybe he was a hairy man with a garment of hair. I don't know. But um, he had a leather belt about his waist and that's all he needed to say. Ahaziah knew exactly who it was. That's Elijah the Tishbite. And the fascinating thing to me that there was no sense of um, concern, there was no sense of fear uh, in the king. And from what follows, it is absolutely evident that Ahaziah just wanted to dispatch him. That's all Ahaziah could think of. I need to kill him. I need to get rid of him. I don't want to listen to him. Like his father, he hated the word of God. And Elijah represented the word of God. Notice that three times in these short verses in uh, chapter, uh, verse, or sorry, in verse 3 and verse 6 and verse 16, that little account is there for us. The message of God that's repeated that the king is going to die. The point here is simply this. Ignore the word of God at your own peril. That's what's being emphasized by repeating that point three times. Ahaziah, in bypassing the God of Israel and inquiring of the God of Ekron, was demonstrating his view and his belief that the God of Israel was inadequate and insufficient to deal with his problems. To him, God was non-essential. To him, God was irrelevant. And like his father, he hated the word of God. And when you and I take first recourse to other helps and supports, we subtly confess the same thing. Secondly, there is a beauty of the mercy of God illustrated in this text. I, I don't know if you've seen it. There's seven um, glimpses that I can see in this text of the mercy of God. I want to quickly go through them with you. The first is the rebellion at his door. That was a mercy of God. Because it was an opportunity for him to reflect on his powerlessness 
and on the fact that there was a God who could deal with them. And in fact, that's exactly what Jehoshaphat did. If you go to 2 Chronicles, you realize what Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, did when Moab was knocking on his door. One of my favorite verses in, in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Chronicles, when I, and I think of this when I'm at my wit's end, and I'm often at my wit's end, is simply this, where he says, For we are powerless before this multitude that is fighting against us. We don't know what to do, God, but our eyes are upon you. That would have been the right response for Ahaziah. As this horde is knocking on his door, it was an opportunity that God had given to say, look at what I can do. Look at how I will deal with that horde Moab at your door. Secondly, his illness was a gift of God. Sometimes illnesses are a great opportunity given to us from God to stop, to slow down, and to think about life a little bit better. There's something that takes place when people become sick that they have time on their hands. They maybe are secluded in their home or they're secluded in a hospital bed and all of a sudden they, their pace of life changes, their focus of life changes. And they have an opportunity to reflect on what matters and how they should respond. So this fall from the second story window was an opportunity given by God. It was a mercy of God given to Ahaziah to stop him, to get his attention and to redirect his thinking towards God. The third thing, mercy of God, was the silence of his idols. That's a real gift of God. Because you know that idols speak deceit. You know that people can go to um, psychics and they can read their horoscopes and they can have their tarot cards read and they can receive words from the dark place. But in this case, Ahaziah heard nothing except the word of God. That was a mercy of God. God allowed him an opportunity to think clearly without having his head and heart clouded by deceitful, deceitful advice. Thirdly, there was an interruption of God. A sermon sent by the man of God, Elijah the Tishbite. Here was Elijah the Tishbite that had come with a word from God. Listen, what are you going to Akron? Is there no God in Israel? Listen to the word of God. That was a, a fourth opportunity for Ahaziah to hear the grace of God. Another one was the, his frustrated attempts to control things. 102 dead men. Why wasn't Ahaziah zapped with fire from heaven? I don't understand all the ins and outs of the story, but it should have been an opportunity for him to think, okay, if I try and take on God, I'm going to lose. Thirdly, he had a pers or, uh, sixthly, he had a personal visit from God's servant, Elijah himself. What an amazing act or gift of God's mercy. You know that. Some people are dying in their hospital beds and a Christian goes and speaks. That is an act of mercy. That is a gift of mercy. That that person in the hospital has an opportunity from someone sent by God to hear about God. And finally, he has a final pronouncement about death and before he actually dies. Seven opportunities to see and to hear the mercy of God. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about today. The obvious is staring you right in the face. What are you going to do about it? Are you so committed to your way of thinking, to manipulating the system, to going after gods of your own making, that you will continue to reject God? I was thinking about a couple texts. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's God's heart. That's God's mercy. In another place, he says, I, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. That's the heart of God. 
that you would turn from your wicked ways and live. Fourth question. Do you really think you can outmuscle God? Do you really think you can put God in his place as you're facing all these difficult circumstances in life? It's sad to see that, and by now I'm talking about verses 9 to 12 here, and the first two companies of men that go to try and fetch Elijah and bring him back. It's really sad to see the way people write about these three verses, and they, they get their shorts all tied in a knot because they get really mad, and, and they think, well, how could God do this? And how could Elijah ever pray that way? And, and what kind of morality is there in the text that this kind of stuff would take place? And they have others who try and come to the defense of God, and they just botch it all up. I hope I don't try and do either. I just want to let the text speak for itself, and I want you to think in your head, do you really think God needs any of us to defend him about something that's in his word? But for starters' sake, for, for, and I, I hesitate to use this because I know what I'm trying to say in my head, but I don't know if it will come across the right way to you. But let's just for a moment hypothetically say that this represents God at his worst here, sending fire to consume 102 men. Stick that in your head for a moment. Now, just for a moment, think about your worst moment. Think about the worst thing that you've ever done, ever said, the worst sin that you've ever committed, the worst crime you've ever uh, committed an action that maybe nobody knows about, nobody knows the details of in your life, could be easily titled, You at Your Worst. Now, for extra emphasis, let's just blast that up on the screen behind us here. Let's just let everybody read, here's Paul at his worst. Would you say that that moment defines you? Would you say that that moment is all there is for people to know about you? Would you want people or your spouse or your kids or your friends to look at that one situation and let that determine their whole view of you for the rest of your life? I hardly think so. So don't let one text, four verses, determine your view of God at the expense of thousands of other verses that fill out a picture of God. Elijah is often vilified here for his prayer. I think it's important to shift the focus, though, of blame from Elijah to God. Elijah had certainly suggested that if they're the true God of Israel, or if he was a man of God, that God would answer by fire. But Elijah had no more power to command fire to come down for heaven than you or I do. I don't think there's one of us that could go out there and if somebody ticks us off, we could say, and they just explode in flames. So that's not Elijah to do that. It was God who answered Elijah's prayer. Elijah had no more power to incinerate 102 men than you or I do. That was God who did that. So let's shift the blame from Elijah to God and say it's God who torched 102 lives. Secondly, this is an act of war. Let's be honest here. This is an act of war. Ahaziah does not send a couple of his palace servants to go and fetch Elijah for a a wonderful parade back to the palace so they can have a little chit-chat out in the garden together. No, he is sending the Sumerian version of the Green Berets. He's sending the Sumerian version of SEAL Team 6. He's sending the Samaritan version of Canada's JTF2 group. Do you really think that he's inviting Elijah to come for a nice friendly chat and dinner? These were captains, and and they went out with uh, their their groups of 50 under the authority of the king and the command of the king. And if you heard Bill as he read the scripture, he gave it the right emphasis. The king is commanding Elijah to come. These men are going to get Elijah to bring him back so they can dispatch him. That's the purpose of these these guys going to get them. It was the king's order. To bring them back. He was out to defy God. He was out to attack God. He was out to say, listen, God, you don't rule my life. I do. You don't tell me when I'm going to die. I control when I'm going to die. 
This is Ahaziah taking up his father's battle by declaring war on Elijah. He was declaring war on God. And the fire that fell from heaven is meant to take us back to Carmel, where Elijah prayed, the God who answers by fire is God. And Ahaziah knew all about that. All Israel had gone out to Mount Carmel. And at the end of the day, Ahaziah had gone home and they had sat around the table and there would be hundreds of empty seats at the table. And his mom and dad were fuming and furious at what Elijah and God had done. He knew exactly what had happened on Mount Carmel. But he tried to outmuscle God. There's a bill right now, a proposed bill in California, Bill 2943. And it's a bill uh, in California that is declaring homosexual conversion therapy fraudulent and therefore or illegal or unlawful. By doing that, what the state is saying is that the state has the right to determine a worldview of pure materialism. And that any Christian who would have a different view, a different worldview than, their, than theirs, does not have a legal right to that view. That is the attempt of that particular individual in California to muscle God out and to say, I don't give a rip about what your ethics are and what your word is. We're going to make it illegal for Christians to believe this. So it's as relevant today as it was back then, but don't think that you can outmuscle God. The point of the story, i got to move quickly here. The point of the story is in verse 17, and I'll just make it, it's, it's obvious, I think, for you, um, if you underline stuff, verse 17, so he died according to the word of the Lord. There it is again. Loved ones, you cannot thwart the word of God. You maybe can run from it. You can maybe hide for, for a period of time, but the word of God will always come to pass. There's nothing that Ahaziah could do. There's nobody he could turn to. There's no muscle power that he had that could ever say to God, you know what, you spoke that, but I'm stronger than you. It's not going to happen. The word of God is absolutely clear that he died according to the word of God. Now, I hope we ought to understand that, that, that while the word of God in judgment is very real, it's appointed under man once to die and then the judgment, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. At the end, God will t send the righteous into eternal life, but the wicked he will send to an eternal hell. It's important that we understand that the words of judgment will come to pass. But it's also helpful for us to understand that the words of promise and blessing and hope will also come to pass equally so that all of God's word his words of judgment and his words of blessing will come to pass everything will happen according to the word of the Lord I think that's the main point of that text God's word is not up for grabs lastly I want to jump back to verses 13 to 15 one more question so how do you approach a holy God I think we find that in this text here. We have this captain of 50, a third captain of 50. Now, you've got to understand, these were fighting men. And I think any time you sign up for, uh, for those kind of jobs that protect the country or protect people, you understand that death is a possibility of that job. But nobody would really want to die by fire and by being torched. I wonder what it was like at the, back in the barracks then as this day started out. The first team is sent out, slaps on the back, go get them. Uh, yeah, we'll be back at lunchtime. This is going to be great. We're just going to get Elijah. He's sitting on top of a mountain. He's unarmed. Shortly, the word comes back. Dead. All of them burned. Then you have the second group. Order comes from the king again. Go get them. 
Second team heads out maybe a little bit more carefully now, a little less self-confident, a little bit more prepared. We'll be back by dinner time. And then the news is heard again. Dead. Every last one of them. 51 men. Good men. Dead. I suspect the seriousness of the situation struck home. And he would think, well, what king in his right mind would send out another 50 guys? And yet the order comes from the king again. Take your 50 men, go get Elijah. I want him. But there's something different about this man, this third captain. He realized that he was up, up against something that was bigger than him. He realized he was up against somebody that was stronger than him. He realized that he was up against a force that he had never met in all his fighting career. He realized that there was something more going on than meets the eye. And he realizes that the lives of his men and his actions in the next few minutes would determine whether they lived or died. So you notice his posture as he comes to Elijah. What does he do? He falls on his knees. And then it says he pleads with Elijah. And then it gives us his petition. Let my life and the life of my 50 men be precious in your sight. And then there's the outcome. He lives. I want to press this home to you and I today. This is how we approach a powerful, holy God. In humility. Beseeching him to be merciful to us. This unnamed captain of 50 men found mercy before God because of his humility before God. You and I are, you might be fighting circumstances in your life and you're bashing up against God and you want to go around God, you want to go against God. It doesn't work. Humble yourself under hand, at the hand of God, and he will exalt you. We find that in the scriptures, do we not? As two men were praying, Pharisee went up and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this task, tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified or righteous or alive rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's two ways of life. One is a way of life in rebellion against God, which leads to death. One is a way of life which humbles herself before God and leads to life. Will you not choose life today rather than death? I want to close with a story founded in a, in a commentary that I read a number of years ago by Dale Ralph Davis, and I was reminded of again this week as he's talking about an incident that happened on August, in August in 1754 as George Whitfield was preaching in a, one uh, William Grinshaw's Yorkshire Parish. Well, George Whitfield was an amazing man. He regularly preached before there was any sort of stuff like this to 20 and 30,000 people. In fact, the largest crowd that he's reported to ever preach to was 100,000 people. There was incredible moves of God that um, resulted through his preaching. The story goes, and this is from the text, Grimshaw had an elevated pulpit constructed outside the south wall of the parish church. The number of hearers would not then be restricted to the capacity of the church building. Whitfield stood there and addressed a massive throng after prayer, he solemnly announced his text. It was Hebrews 9:27. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. He paused and was about to proceed, but it was cut off by a wild, curdling shriek from the middle of the congregation. 
Pastor Grimshaw hurried to investigate and after some minutes returned to tell Whitfield that an immortal soul has been called into eternity. The news was announced to the people. After a few moments, Whitfield again announced his text. It is appointed unto men once to die. Another piercing shock rose from another part of the crowd. Horror settled over the assembly when they heard a second person had fallen dead. After the turmoil had subsided somewhat, Mr. Whitfield indicated his intention of proceeding with the service. He did so, doubtless announcing his text again to an assembly as still as death. Davis asked, do you suppose they listened to Whitfield that day on that text? And why did they do so? Fear, indeed terror. It was unnerving but not unhealthy. Not if it humbled them to hear. As the line in Amazing Grace says to us, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." So what's been happening in your life lately? Are you able to see God's hand at work trying to get your attention? Who or what have you been turning to in those times of trouble? God is able to help. What are you doing when the obvious hand of God is before you? Do you really think that God is of no account and that you can outmuscle God? God is not pushed around by any of us. And finally, will you not humble yourself before God today? Because he says, if you humble yourselves before him, he will lift you up and let you live. Father, we thank you for your word today and for what we learn from a dying man. And we don't really know the outcome of Ahaziah's life. We can probably assume from the way the text is written, but it can be written for our help today. And so if there are any that are here today living in defiance of you, trying to control you, trying to overpower you on the path that leads to destruction, oh, Father, would your mercy wake them up would they humble themselves before you and find themselves on the path of life? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.